We started last week a series that we've entitled Clear Faith in a Blurry World, looking at the second to the last book of the New Testament, uh, the one page letter uh, from Jesus's half-brother Jude. And last week we learned that Jude wanted to talk about the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, the salvation that he had come to receive while first thinking his brother was crazy and then seeing Jesus Christ after being dead and buried now uh, risen from the grave alive and well. He placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and this was what he wanted to talk about. But circumstances kept him from doing that, and so he speaks to this subject of contending for the faith, fighting for the faith, uh, putting all of your energy and emphasis in this life into that faith, and the reason why is that people had crept in. People had crept in unnoticed that were changing the gospel of Jesus Christ, were changing the worldview that Jesus Christ was Lord into this worldview that said you were God that you were master, and that because you were God and you were master and because Jesus' words didn't matter, you could live all manner of sensuality and selfishness and pursue all manner of possessions and pleasures of this world uh, unabashed and unhindered. And as a result of that, Jude writes and he says, I want you to contend for the faith. I want you to uh, address these, these creepers that come in unnoticed, I want you to push back and I want you to do some evaluating, to ask the question, are you under their influence? Are you under uh, their teaching? And we learned last week that these false teachers, that we're gonna learn five characteristics about today in our text, these creepers, these teachers don't need pulpits. Last week we learned about social influencers. And how social media, and for that matter, media as a whole, has a way of influencing our lives. What we watch on TV, what we listen to on the radio and in our uh, iPods and iPads and all of the different things we use now to listen to uh, music, the magazines we read, the podcasts that we listen to, all of this comes down to this idea of being influenced by the world. What Jude is talking about is be careful of voices, of influences in the world that creep in. Now I want to say really, really quickly, even before we get into our text, that not all voices in the world are bad. In fact, we're going to cite some, Jude's going to cite some in his uh, text this morning that are outside of the Bible altogether. And this is not me ranting that all things secular are bad. That all things that don't come with a gospel attached to the end of it are altogether demonic. That's not the case at all. In fact, I will quote uh, from a couple uh, different sources, individuals who are altogether secular but speak truth. But what I want to get to is I want us to evaluate what we are consuming and how that consumption is influencing our lives. To do so, let's look at the book of Jude. Let's listen from Jesus' brother and let's learn how we can contend for the faith. Jude chapter one, we're gonna start in verse five where we left off last week. We're gonna go all the way to verse 16 and it is an absolute mouthful. Let's listen to what he has to say. Now, I wanna remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah Uh, and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires serve as an example by undergoing a, a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Holy cow. Jude is on fire. And what Jude is going to communicate, and it's hard, you sit there and go, how in the world are we going to get done on time? And the answer is, we won't, but you should be right on time for the Thanksgiving dinner, okay? No, you know two groups already been in and out, so we'll get you in and out as well. But there's a lot here. And I want you to know and recognize before you prejudge how I'm going to go about preaching this, that Jude shares all these things as rapid fire, as bullet points to say all of these serve as examples of a truth. You and I, by contending for the faith, need to evaluate the voices we're listening to. That's his point. And that just as in the first century, as is today, there are voices, demonic, deviant, disobedient voices that are whispering in our ears, that are leading us away from Jesus Christ being our only Lord and Master. Now, these people did it one-on-one, in person in the first century. We now do it swipe by swipe, reel by reel, post by post, tweet by tweet, movie by movie, magazine by magazine, music album by music album. It is a plethora, plethora of ways that we receive these voices. And the question is, are we evaluating this fundamental question this morning? Am I under the influence and not know it? Am I under the influence and I don't know it? 
When we talk about being under the influence, right away our mind goes to alcohol. A person who drinks alcohol, little by little, becomes under the influence of the alcohol. Sip by sip, gulp by gulp, more and more the alcohol begins to carry the day. With every ounce of alcohol, the influence grows. And if you've been around anybody who has taken in too much alcohol, you see firsthand inhibitions drop. Words that would never be said before sober are now being communicated in grand fashion. The motor skills begin to fall apart. The reaction time begins to fall away. And scientists have said this is a phenomenon that you can observe again and again. You put alcohol into a system, this is what's going to happen. And it kind of goes like this. Where as we drink drinks, the more drinks we have, the more influence that alcohol will have on us. I want you to ask this question this morning, not in the realm of drinking but in the realm of your consumption of media this morning and the voices that media brings, am I under the influence? Now, I want you to notice two correlations between what I'm talking about from Jude and drinking alcohol. Number one, the influence is determined by three factors. One, the amount consumed. Two, the time it takes to do it. And three, the dulling of the senses and the progression of that dullness taking place. So it is with our media. The more deviant, the more demonic, the more disobedient, the more uh, rebellious media, spiritually rebellious media we take in, whether on our phones, our TVs, on our radios, the more we take it in, the greater chance it will be under its influence. The more time we give to it, the more that influence will grow. And the more that that influence grows, the more our senses, the spiritual senses that God has given believers will be dulled. And the book of Jude says, for many we don't even know it. We don't even know it. We don't realize it. We are the drunk who is unaware that we're really drunk. We're unaware of what's coming out of our mouths. We're unaware of the doctrines that we now espouse to, maybe in private, because we've allowed these voices to carry the day. And so what Jude says is, instead of writing about the salvation that we all have, I've got to ask you to do some examination. And he gives five things we need to be looking for. Number one, we need to be looking for signs. We need to be looking for signs. Jude begins by saying in verse 5, I want to remind you of some things. And he begins reminding, and I'm not going to be able to go through every one of these. Every one of these examples, there's like eight or nine examples that he gives. But I want you to know where they're coming from so that you can look in your Bibles, because I know and recognize there's a lot of newer Christians here who maybe haven't heard these stories, and I want to make sure that you know where these stories are coming from. And then I want to challenge those who have been believers for a long time. If you don't know these stories, not in a Bible trivia sort of way, but the Bible says that the Old Testament, those stories serve as an example for us. 
And so if we don't know them, notice what he says. I want to remind you of things that you ought to already know. You should have known these things. You should have fully known them. And maybe you don't, which maybe means we need to take the t- turn the TV off and turn off our phones and get into this book. But for those that maybe are new, I want to give some real grace. We're glad to have you here. And so I want you to know where this stuff is coming from because some of it comes from the Bible and some of it comes from outside of the Bible. And we're okay with that, by the way. So let's get into it. So first of all, he brings up the book of Exodus. He brings up the book of Exodus. Really, he brings up uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the second through fifth books of the Bible. And it's the storyline we see in verse 5 of the people of God, the Israelites, being brought under captivity uh, in Egypt. For 400 years, they're slaves, enduring great hostility from the Egyptians. And they cry and they cry and they cry for God to rescue them. And for 400 years, he sees fit not to. Until that is that he sends Moses a leader of leaders to go and to demand that God or that Pharaoh let God's people go. And that's exactly what happens. And it happens because of God's hand, because of the many uh, plagues that God sends upon the Egyptians. And then what you will see is this group of, of people that have seen God's hand in such powerful ways go out into the wilderness and rebel against God at every turn. That's in the book of Exodus and on. Then we get into verse 6, and we get this little episode of angels who do not stay within their own position of authority, but leave their propping dwelling, and then they're put in chains. This comes from Genesis chapter 6. This is right before the flood. Something heinous takes place that causes God to be grieved that he created man. And Genesis 6 talks about angels. So remember, angels were with God before the foundations of the world. They're worshiping God in heaven. God had created them before creating human beings. And somewhere between God creating angels and the creation of the world and human beings, Lucifer, the chief cherub of all the angels, rebels against God. We don't know why, we don't know how, but he does. He is such a powerful created angel that a third of the angels agree that he can take God and they follow suit. Well, in an instant, God throws them out of heaven he throws them down to earth where demons now as they have in jesus's day and since that day wander around the world we can't see them but they're there now when jesus's ministry we saw people possessed by demons we saw demons going into pigs demons being thrown into the sea demons are all about well there's this episode in genesis chapter 6 where a group of demons we don't know how many see that the women human women are beautiful and they go and sleep with them well how could they do that well everywhere we see angels they're always viewed as men and they have human characteristics even though they're not human they're spiritual beings they can eat they sleep they can talk they walk they appear as men and so this leaving of position these demons took on uh, if you will uh, some level of flesh and slept with women and created a mongrel species of human beings this is where god says i'm grieved i made humans i'm going to destroy them all the reason why is because genesis 6 tells us that the human race was absolutely corrupted 
that man no longer was mortal. And these giants the text talks about are walking all around the land. They were called Nephilim. And God says, okay, I'm going to kill them all. And he does, but he finds, but one man finds favor. That's Noah and his family, and they are saved. And we are, the, of course, the descendants of that. Then we have Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, the story of Lot who lived in Sodom, starts with the calling of Abraham in Genesis 15. And as you move through Abraham's story, Lot becomes more of a focal point. Lot is the nephew of Father Abraham. And he sojourns with Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees, northern Iraq, to uh, Canaan. And he makes his dwelling there. As their clans get larger, Lot and Abraham split off. And Lot picks an area around the city of Sodom. Little by little, moment by moment, he worms his way, inches his way, gets closer to Sodom until he's in the city of Sodom. Sodom's a bad place. It's a dark place. It's a debased place. And because of that, God says, my judgment's coming upon them. Well, of course, Abraham hears this from God and wants to save his nephew. And so he starts having this deal with God going back and forth. For this many people, will you save the city? And God says, yes. So Abraham goes, can't find them, lowers the number until he gets down to just an individual. Can we find just one in the city, right? And even Lot is defiling himself. Even Lot is finding himself corrupted by the world around him. And so God, in his grace, sends two angels to the city of Sodom. Lot meets them in the town square. And he recognizes that there's something more about these guys. And I think he probably recognizes that my uncle was visited by two guys who were different than anything in this world, but they were men. They ate and slept and talked and walked and all of that. Well, he starts interacting with these two men and they say, we're going to stay in the town square. We're going to sleep there for the night. And Lot says uh, later in Genesis 17, 18, 19, we see that Lot says to these men, no, no, come to my house. The reason why is Sodom's not a good place to hang out. So come to my house, I'll feed you, you can get some rest, and you can go on your way. Well, while they're finishing dinner, the men of the town, it says young and old, surround the house, banging on the door, because they want to know the visitors. The men that have come. So men want to know these other men. The euphemism to know in the Old Testament always speaks of sexual union. Adam knew his wife and she conceived a son. So every time we see that, we've got sex taking place. These men have come to have sex with these male visitors. Lot freaks out. Lot's like, this defilement can't happen. So what does he do? He tells the men, I will give you my two virgin daughters. Have your way with them. Do what you will with them. And they say they don't want the women, they want the men. And within 12 hours, God destroys the city. And then we go on and we get into verse 8 and we've got this defiling of the flesh and the rejecting of authority. And then in verse 9 we get this story about the archangel Michael and the devil. Now this is outside of the Bible. This comes from a book called The Assumption of Moses. You can still read most of it today. You can go to the internet and read old manuscripts of this uh, book. It's not in the Bible 
And it talks about an event when Moses died that the devil wanted Moses' body. And there's a lot of debate on why he may have wanted Moses' body. But he wants it, and there's this interaction between the archangel Michael and the devil. And they're fighting, they're contending is the word that Jude uses for the body. Now, just because this is outside of the Bible, because it's put into the Bible, most Bible scholars would say we would believe it to be true. We'd believe it to be true because Jude is speaking to it as a fact. And so this event must have happened, but it's just not in the Bible. And again, we're okay with that. And then we run into other stories, the story of, of Cain, which is found in Genesis 4, where he kills his brother out of jealousy. Then we get uh, Balaam, and Balaam's story is that he takes the truth of God and monetizes it and, and uses it for selfish gain. That's found in Numbers 22 through 24. And then the story of Korah and his band of brothers who rebel and raise an insurrection against Moses. That's found in Numbers 16. And then at the end of the passage, we get this quote from Enoch, the seventh from Adam. That comes from the book of Enoch, which isn't in the Bible, but again is factually true because Jesus Christ is coming again. So all of this is to point to characteristics about these guys. And we have limited time, so let's jump into it right away. What do we need to evaluate about the voices that we hear and take in today? We have to understand there's some characteristics about them. Characteristic number one, they're pagan. They're pagan. Notice, of after all the stories are told, a couple of things I want you to see. As you work through the text, notice in verse 5, these people are people who do not believe or did not believe. In, in verse 11, they are ones who defy, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme. In, in verse 11, he says they are to have woe pronounced to them. He calls them hidden reefs, that is, things that will shipwreck you, that will destroy your ship in the water. They're shepherds who devour the sheep. He goes on, and in verse 15, he says four times the word ungodly, ungodliness, ungodly, and then ungodly sinners. These aren't Bible people, these aren't church leaders, these aren't Christians. And so it begs the question this morning, of the people you're listening to, what you're being entertained by, let me ask this question this morning. How many of them are pagans? How many of them are not followers of Jesus Christ? Ask this question. Am I hearing from Christians at a higher level than I'm hearing from non-Christians? What ratio are you hearing the truths about God and his people and his word based on uh, what many would say are the corrupt world views of the sinners around us? Now listen to me. Does that mean that every unbeliever shouldn't be listened to? No. Does that mean we can't watch a movie with unbelievers in it? The answer is no. But we have to evaluate. We have to discern. We have to contend for the faith. So let's evaluate what we're tuning into, the podcasts we're subscribing to, the movies we're watching, the music we're listening to, the people who entertain us. These are pagans. 
So ask this question. If I was to have a sit-down conversation with them and I told them what I believed, what would their response be? What would their response be? Would they speak well of Jesus? Would they speak negatively about Jesus? Would they mock and scoff at my faith, at your faith, at your beliefs based on Scripture? We need to be careful of who we're listening to. The people that were in Jude's day were syncing their Christianity with the voices, the pagan voices of the world who traded in, who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So I could name a lot of names. I'm going to try not to as best I can because I want you to discern the voices you're listening to. I don't want to demonize them. I don't want to do that. I want you to discern, are they a voice that I should be giving the amount of time and attention that I am? And by the way, it goes beyond just that of entertainment. It's the political pundits we listen to. It's the social commentaries that we listen to. Are what, we, are what we are listening to and getting, is it what Jude's saying is ungodly? Does it fit that category? Number two, these people were possessive. They were possessive. He moves on from verse five and he talks about the Israelites who are rescued by Jesus, by God, uh, from slavery in Egypt. Through miracle upon miracle, they walk through the Red Sea. They see manna come from heaven. They're led by a pillar of smoke and and, and a pillar of fire. They get water from a rock. Quail fall from the sky when they're hungry. Their shoes never wear out in 40 years. They have everything they need for three million people as they wander what is the equivalent of about the state of Illinois. They never get to the promised land and they rebel against God the entire time. Why would a people who experience more miracles than any other people of God, bar none, why would they rebel against God? The answer is because they had in their mind they knew better. They had in mind that they possessed all they needed for life. They had everything they needed to live out their life and they lived that way. So let me ask you, of the people you're following, are they listening to God or are they rebelling against God? Do they really believe that they're living under the oversight of God? Maybe they're not believers. Let's just ask this. Do they see themselves as knowing they are created beings, created by someone greater than them who will hold them accountable? Do they have that kind of worldview? Because if they don't, then they believe themselves to simply be an evolved animal who should get what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and whoever gets in his way or her way better look out. These people grabbed hold of that, and many of in our media are grabbing hold of that, that they are a law unto themselves. They can do what they want in the ways they want. They're possessive of that kind of life. Number three, they're perverted. They're perverted. 
In verses six and seven, Jude speaks of two events that have perversion written all over it. First, in verse six, we've got angels sleeping with women, creating a mongrel race of humans slash demons who roam around the world that brings God's judgment. And then we have in Genesis the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where men trading natural relations with the woman, they pursue men. With the prospect of two young virgin daughters, grown men, young men, say, no, we want someone like us. Perversion. These people are are trading in, as it says, sensuality for the grace that they were given. They defile the flesh later in the text, it tells us. They reject authority. And what it says in verse six is they left their position of authority. They left their lane. If there was a statement that Jude could make about the 21st century's view of sexuality, we have left our lane. God has given us our lane. Sexual relations with something he created for our good, for our enjoyment. Listen to me very carefully. God loves sex. He loves it. He's the mastermind behind it. It is pure, it is holy, and it is to be pleasurable. And what God creates, Satan counterfeits. And Satan begins to pervert it all over the place. And we can just focus in on on the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and say, well, that's the chief one. Listen to me. There's all kinds of perversion in our world. And it's being pursued. And some of us are being led by it. Some of us are engaged in it. Some of us are dreaming about it. Some of us are longing to pursue it. That didn't come from God. Don't put that on God. God said, I created it and I've spoken to you about it in my word as clear as day. And the devil says, did God say? Did God say? Well, remember the stage of truth is if it feels good and it makes me feel better, then it must be true. No, what does God's word say about it? And God's word has spoken Folks, we live in what may seemingly be one of the most perverted days we live in. But here's the problem. We read and we find out we're not. So what makes this generation feel so perverted? It's the pervasiveness of it. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. It's impacting young and old alike so much that even the secular voices in our world are concerned about it. Let's look at this quote. A group of individuals analyzed the 172 top female influencers on social media over a period of four months. They ranged from women who willingly promote brands with no remuneration, they don't get paid to it, to, market, to those who market themselves as a personal brand. Our sample of influencers was drawn internationally and sourced from shout-out pages which act as a virtual currency to build popularity and thus gain attention. We analyzed images, interactions, and comments of the influencer studied. Stop there. See, you guys learned last time. Thank you. Where did they go? 172 
social media pages. They went to Instagram. Instagram's highest demographic are girls aged 11 to 19. Okay? Instagram's highest demographic are girls from the ages 11 to 19. What'd they find out? This is the secular world talking. This isn't Bible banger Bob, okay? Here's what the secular world says. Turn the page. We found a continuum of pornified self-representations by these social media influencers on Instagram. This ranged from softer references where influencers posed to highlight sexually sexualized body parts and employ porn-chic images that are hard to differentiate from mainstream commercial pornography. Here, pornified representations grab viewers' attentions with the goal of being monetized to sell products such as protein powder, gummy vitamins, and detox tea. Friends, sex sells. And that memo is going out to our world and is impacting the youngest of us. In fact, the exposure of pornography uh, to the youngest among us, look at this screen with regards to uh, the images of porn to teenagers. 93% of your teenage boys have seen pornography. 62% of girls have seen it. And I can assure you, they're not looking it up on websites anymore. It's there on Snapchat. It's there on Facebook. It's there on TikTok. It's all over the place. So imagine what an 11-year-old boy or 11-year-old girl is going to come up with their view of sexuality when they've seen the darkest, deviant senses of sex that anybody could ever imagine or dream up. We're in trouble. And the world is telling us we're in trouble. Lawmakers are saying, we got to get a handle of this. Great Britain said, it is the pandemic of all pandemics, the issue of pornography and sexual perversion. And so we need to recognize that it's all over the place. We say, well, no, my kids aren't watching that. They're not. Listen, did you hear what they said? It starts out really, really small. So let me ask, how perverted are the things that you're watching? Let's talk about movies. Let's talk about music. Let's talk about what we're scanning through as we, as we go through our, our uh, social media feeds. What's coming up? What's the commentary about your self-sexual care? It's all over the place. And you don't think that this is impacting you? You don't think that this is uh, unnoticed? Brothers and sisters, we're in the pot and it's on fire. And we're bringing it into the church. And we're bringing it into our marriages. And we're bringing it into our homes and into our families. And our children are feasting on these things with no spiritual, mental, emotional, or biblical way to defend against it. How much are we willing to lose before we'll contend for the faith? They're pagan. They're possessive, they're perverted, they're proud. They're proud. In verses 8 through 11, we'll move a little quickly now. In in verses 8 through 11, we get that they blaspheme the glorious ones. At the end of the passage, it says they're grumblers, they're malcontents, they're loudmouth boasters. Sounds like Jude's been on Facebook. Right? 
How many grumblers have we seen? How many malcontents? People that are never happy. How many of them following their own simple ways? How many are loudmouth boasters? Can I ask this question? When did being a loudmouth, arrogant cuss become popular? But we see it in our, in our po- political punditry. We see it with our podcast commentators. The louder you are, the more bombast you show, the wiser you must be. I'll really rile you up. We see this in our politics. Have you seen some of these debates that are going on? They're like kindergartners. Well, get loud, get obnoxious, and say you're the best one for the job, and that will win the day. And here's the thing, it will. But let it not be so for the Christians. Because the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. The Bible says, blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who are meek in spirit. But we love the proud. And the proud do what they want when they want. That's what Cain did when Abel got in his way. That's what Korah did when Moses got in his way. And that's what Balaam did when the donkey got in his way. You can read that story. And no, I'm not talking about Shrek. When you're proud and you're arrogant, you will knock anybody down who gets in your way with words, with fists, whatever. And it's not just people who do it, nations do it. We love that about our country. We go around and bully people in our country. Because it feels good, because we're proud. We're proud as a nation. And what does Jude say? Woe to you. Woe. That's not a good word, woe. Jesus reserved the woes for the most defiled of individuals. The most destructive of doctrines. These people were proud. Finally, they're pointless. In verse 12 through 13, we get this litany of things. There are hidden reefs at your love feast. So you go to have a good time and you're shipwrecked as a result. That doesn't sound like a good love feast. You, you go, uh, your, your sheep and your shepherds eat you. Well, that's not good for a shepherd. If he eats the sheep, he won't have anybody to follow or to, to, to tend to. And then he goes on and he says, there, your waterless clouds. What well, good is a cloud without water? That is, what's good with a cloud without rain? What about fruitless trees, fruit trees that bear no fruit? What good are they? They're pointless. What about wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam? You ever been on the beach trying to capture up that foam? Little kids, and there's nothing. There's nothing there. It's pointless. It's useless. And what Jude is saying is these people live pointless lives. Friends, how many more Hollywood stories do we need to see end with suicide and drug overdoses to recognize that what we are pursuing is pointless? At a recent Chiefs football game, Taylor Swift, one of the most influential people in our world, was wearing her boyfriend, Travis Kelsey's uniform. Travis Kelsey's uniform ranked over 100 in uniforms sold. 
She was seen for about 22 seconds in a skybox watching the game, wearing his jersey. Overnight, he became the number one jersey sold. Do you think we follow them? We are influenced in ways we don't know. They sell us everything from burgers to cars. One of my favorite Bears podcasts says, drive what Justin Fields drives. Really? I'm not sure I want to be associated with that guy right now. But because Justin Fields drives it, I want to drive it. Because Taylor Swift wears it, I want to wear it. Brothers and sisters, we got to stop following Hollywood and start following Jesus. I love what a Hollywood person himself said. He put it this way. Jim Carrey, who's had a bit of an epiphany happening in his life as of recent days, said this. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Well, hello, Ecclesiastes. Have we met? And yet we follow it. And we want it. And this type of teaching, this type of living has made its way into Village Bible Church. It has wormed its way all a bit suddenly, subtly, and this pointless way of life is worthless. And it's going to end in destruction. So do some evaluating in these days to come. And maybe after the end of your evaluating, you can say, hey, this stuff's okay. It's in check, and I'm going to leave that to you, and I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do its work. I'm not going to put on you laws. I'm not going to put on you my convictions. I want you to go and say, Lord, am I hearing you in this person? Am I seeing you in this person? Is your word being reinforced by this person, by what they're doing, by what they're saying, by what they're promoting? Or are they a pagan, possessive, perverted, proud, and pointless voice that I'm wasting my time with? Well, it's not just good enough to look for the signs. We need to long for the Savior. I gotta close this thing. Jude finishes up with this incredible prophecy from the book of Enoch, and it is that Jesus is coming. So instead of allowing the voices of the world to creep in unnoticed. What should we be doing? Three things. We should listen. We should look. And we should learn. Listen, look, and learn. Listen. Behold, he says. That's a word that arrests the listener, that stops us in our tracks. Stop listening to the voices of the world and listen. Jesus is coming back, amen? And he's coming back and he's not alone. Look, he's bringing thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. Here's the problem. Many of us don't even care. We're so distracted by the world. I'll be honest with you. Some in this place don't want Jesus to come back because we want to enjoy ourselves a little longer. And when the lifeguard comes, he's going to pull us out of the pool. We don't want that. Christian, our greatest desire shouldn't be to follow this world, but to see Jesus Christ come back in all his glory. 
And he's on his way with tens of thousands of his holy ones. And notice what we need to learn. Jesus means business. He is going to execute judgment. And so are you ready? Are you ready? And what will it say of the people of God that we were in bed with the world? James, Jesus' other brother, said you're an adulterous people. Here Jesus is our spouse. Here God is uh, the one who has saved us, the one we're in relationship with, and we are committing adultery with the world. And how does it happen? You don't just end up in the bed with the other. It starts with flirts. It starts with notes. It starts with warm and fuzzy statements. It starts with a hug, a kiss, a holding of hands, and it moves deeper and darker into the sin of adultery. And could it be said of many of us here today that we are inching our way into an adulterous relationship with the world that God says I'm coming to destroy so what voice are you going to listen to who is going to be your influence you've got a decision to make I've got a decision to make we have to examine our hearts will it be the world or will it be Jesus who is to be the anthem of our hearts, the anthem of our souls. Let's